All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Gym Fear 138 podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Brian Niemeyer, author of the Soul Cycle series, The Hymn of the Pearl, and the upcoming Mecha military science fiction novel series, Combat Frame Exceed. Brian, thanks for coming on the show again, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you. <clears throat> so you had said that you wanted to uh, talk about your upcoming book and kind of, you know, basically show for the Indiegogo, which I'm more than happy to help you out with. So um, Combat Frame X Seed, what's like, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know why my voice is messing up. Uh, what's what's like the baseline uh, that people should know about, just kind of like the elevator pitch? <clears throat> Mobile Suit Gundam meets Metal Gear Solid. Very cool. Very cool. You have you have my interest because I, I always dug uh, the Gundam series. Um, Metal Gear Solid, I kind of have a grudge against because it's not a stealth game. Um, <laughs> it's just mm. it's just not a good stealth game. But in in regards with everything else that's in that game, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> like the gunfights are great. The absolute ridiculousness of like the bosses and some of the battles that you get into in that. Um, so that that gives me a lot of hope for uh, Combat Frame X as if I needed more. But yeah, I was just trying to tailor the pitch to the audience because on the Indiegogo, <laughs> I actually mentioned Tom Clancy. It's more geared toward normie book readers, but you could substitute Splinter Cell, Hitman, whatever your cup of tea is. That's very interesting. That's not something that uh, we had talked about with regard to Combat Frame X before. So we're getting some new some new information here. So this is going to kind of be like a. Uh, a stealthy kind of Hitman mech series? Yeah, there are elements to it that uh, are very espionage-influenced, um, sort of like even... I, I drew inspiration from like the old 60s Ian Fleming Bond novels, okay. ones he actually wrote. It's like the original Bond novels. The original, yeah. Okay. Like, I have um, to admit, I'm not that familiar Bond. with James Bond. I've never watched one of the movies or anything, so... Okay, we're gonna have to fix that, but, <laughs> and uh, and also read the novels because they're they're just good. Uh, to get up on a buddy trailer, Fleming uh, actually practiced what he preached. He was involved with British intelligence during the war. Really? Yeah. Uh, for example, fascinating. Yeah, he was involved with a little thing called Operation Goldeneye, which was his idea. That's cool as hell. And he he basically turned that into. Well, I'm assuming once everything was declassified, he actually turned that into a novel. I don't know if, uh, well, I don't think the, the movie GoldenEye is based on a novel. I think that was their little nod to the author. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, I know that, like, Pierce Brosnan was playing uh, James Bond at the time, and I did play the video game on the N64 back when it came out. So I'm I'm that familiar yeah. with, with James Bond. But it was mostly just, like, Team Deathmatch and stuff like that. I never actually played the uh, storyline. That game was a monster. and It, it was a good Bond film, but... They're, I'm not the most learned Bond guy. I've got friends who are way deeper into the lore than I am, so they might be able to correct me on that. But uh, no, there there was even a miniseries or like a TV movie on the BBC a while back about Ian Fleming and uh, Charles Dance, who played Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones, played Ian Fleming. Hmm. That's in that. cool. I might have to look that up. Um, That'd be a good place to start. So, so yeah. how does the James Bond thing tie into uh, like giant stompy robots? I don't want to give too much away, but there is a political intrigue aspect to the story. It's the first novel in a series, so kind of like in Ethereal, I've got to pull multiple threads 
together because there are several factions all vying for supremacy in this world. And one of the main characters who we follow is a mecha pilot, but at the same time, his job is also conducting some covert reconnaissance at, at certain points in the book. So you've got some infiltrations, some stealth kills. If you, in fact, if you read the first sample chapter, which is available at my blog, Kairos, and it's also linked from the Indiegogo page, you can get kind of an idea of that. Okay. Yeah, I had, I had kind of noticed that it seemed like they were trying to initiate a stealth mission and it just it just went wrong for them. You've clearly read it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the best laid plans, right? And there there is a pedigree of stealth and espionage in the mecha genre. If you look at uh, what Hiro Yui does at the beginning of uh, Gundam Wing, for example. Mm, yeah, I've, I've watched like the first half of Gundam Wing. Um yeah, that they they do get into a lot of stealth, but like the infiltration into the school and everything like that. The, the right. famous we, "I'll kill you" scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if only he followed through. Uh, <sighs> oh. oh well. So um, <clears throat> you you've been doing very well with the with the Kickstarter, and I just wanted to congratulate oh. you and all the all the supporters on that. That's been. Uh, Really encouraging to watch. I think you doubled your your goal in a week or something like that. Yeah, we're two hundred and sixty two percent right now, which um, which means we're more than halfway to you doing the audiobook. That's something that fans can look forward to. <laughs> and uh, speaking of which, like I mentioned this in in the podcast for last week, but um, uh, yeah, I do have the thing recorded. It's it should be it should be to you before this podcast goes up, but um. Yeah, people Shall you tell be... our listeners what the thing is. The thing is a uh, preview of the um the audiobook. So uh Brian has these snippets out on his blog and uh we were talking about doing the audiobook and then uh he said just go ahead and record this first chapter that I have up on the blog. So I went ahead and did that. Now I just have to get into editing. The big problem is finding a good piece of music for it because it's just it's not it's not going to be the actual music for the the uh real audiobook. But it's just kind of going to be a placeholder to kind of give people an idea of what we're going for with the overall project. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, as soon as I get a piece of music, I'll get it edited in and then sent right over to you. Thanks. So, okay, with your... so with the uh, like overall storyline, what's the, what's the like kind of kind of gist of the story here? Without giving too much away. Okay. Yeah, I know DW over on Geekad has said that writers should always have at least three different versions of their book pitch, right? So we we got like the 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 quick one-two punch blurb there, you know, the X meets Y. So let's go ahead and do the slightly longer actual elevator pitch. Okay. So the the story of Comet Frame X projects from our real world history today. So it starts from now and then I just sat down and said, okay, well, how could some of these converging crises play themselves out? So in the XC timeline, what ends up happening is the, the big tech oligarchs, like in all the, the big space exploration companies and software companies and even social media companies, they've developed rudimentary AI that tells them, listen, the big one is coming, the global economic 
and social collapse. And people are going to blame you for a lot of this, because honestly, you're to blame for a lot of this. So they pool their resources, they trick a couple of governments in equatorial countries into letting them build private launch facilities, and they take all their ill-gotten gains, and they escape into space. And they take most of Earth's gold and rare earth mineral reserves with them. Hmm. Okay. Just as a middle finger to the people left behind. <laughs> it's kind of a dick Cause move, but I can understand. Because yeah, they can mine asteroids. They've got plenty of that stuff, but they just uh, they don't want us to have it. So, yeah, society descends into chaos in their absence. Um, you've got the United States breaking up into three or four, depending on how you count, separate polities with um, certain large metropolitan areas just forming their own city-states with spheres of influence extending for like a few hundred miles around them. So kind of like Athens and Sparta and places like that. Yeah, uh, some places basically devolved to um, living under the protection of warlords. The strong man who comes in and says, okay, we'll keep you safe in exchange for peace or fealty to me. And you've then got the the final bounds on Islam breaking and uh, they just blow out of the Middle East and North Africa and expand and end up forming a caliphate that spans all the way from the Middle East through Europe and to the eastern seaboard of the US and Canada. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, which is uh, which they term the Atlasid Caliphate. Now, that's all in the background of the story. Like that that actually happened like a couple hundred years before the story starts. That's just background. Yeah, this is kind of honestly sounding like the um there there was a period of history in Warhammer 40k in a, in the lore that nobody ever talks about before the emperor yeah. showed up. Um We don't talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, where like everything broke down and like like you say a bunch of warlords took over the world and all of these city-states came about and the countries broke up and everything like that. Lots of history was lost. And then the emperor shows up with his with his thunder warriors and just like takes everything over. <clears throat> That's interesting because I haven't read that particular Warhammer lore. I have, I have read some Warhammer lore, but mainly the later stuff. But it sounds like the the guys at Games Workshop and I just have had our finger to the wind and we're seeing the same events and recognizing the same patterns. So I, I think that's quite likely too, unfortunately. But um, anyway, what ends up happening is the remnants of Western civilization that... Uh, many of which survive like in the middle American and Western American and, and Southern states, there's still a vestige. And then also refugees from Europe wind up fleeing to China and Africa, which has since been colonized by China. Okay. Kind of like what's, seeing... what's actually happening right now in, in right. Africa with China. Right. I realize we're exceeding natural elevator pitch, but this is a practice I can boil it down later. <laughs> since you're giving me the time but yeah what ends up happening is in that time china has since become christian majority christian which it is projected to do around um like 2050 so they let these european refugees in out of out of charity and so these movements start to form among the refugees of wanting to launch a crusade and reconquista and retake Europe. <laughs> and yeah, what ends up happening is because 
Rome has been conquered by the Caliphate, the, the last of the bishops and college of cardinals fled to Russia. And Where due they have to, like the, the Orthodox Church. Right. And over like 150 years from, from close contact, the, the schism just just ends. Just because we're all right here. We're all we're all gathered. They're 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 kind of like locked in a room together to hash out their differences, right? <laughs> It's like that Very episode cool. of the Simpsons where Skinner and Waffle are locked in the closet. So, yeah, the Eastern and Western churches end up reuniting under a supreme patriarch who's the successor both of Andrew and Peter in, in one guy who's actually Chinese. Hmm. Okay. And uh, he, the first thing he does is he declares Holy Crusade to retake the Holy Land in Europe and... Um, so yeah, a billion plus Christian Chinese in China and Africa and the European expats just swarm out of there and um, over the, the next few generations succeed in Reconquista 2.0. Awesome. <laughs> very, yeah. very cool. So the only place that uh, the Caliphate actually remains is on the Atlantic North American coast where they've made common cause with the... Uh, oh, so they take back, like, not just Europe, but also, like, the Middle East and Northern Africa? Largely, yeah. Okay. There's still some pockets there, but, um, like, basically, the, the Crusade sweeps up out of Africa through there and down from China, like, through Turkey and through there, but they don't necessarily hold those areas, but they, they do hold Europe, and they establish, actually, new Crusader kingdoms. So you have new, Nouvelle France and... Neue Deutschland, you know, New, New Britannia, if you will. But I didn't exactly get into that in Nova Italia. And so I, monarchy. I hope, this, I hope this is going to turn into a book one day because this sounds like a really interesting story. I know, right? When, you know, TFW, the, the background information sounds more interesting than the novel. But trust me, the novel is going to kick this up a notch. So I didn't, um, I didn't say it sounded more interesting than the novel. I said it sounded like an interesting novel. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was kidding, but uh, that, that's good to know. So yeah, oddly enough, um, the the caliphate is basically pushed back to like the 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 American you know East Coast Canadian East Coast megalopolis, where they have uh, you know willing dinnies in uh, our former elite ruling class. That's what they've been reduced to in what is calling itself the uh, United States of North America. So they, they're one of the groups that claims to be the rightful successor to the USA. Okay. And then they've got the Federated Mid-American States on their borders who are much more loosely organized, much more individualistic, and their militia spends that time. They're not necessarily involved in the crusade, but they are holding back attacks and incursions from the caliphate and from America, basically, like from the what the U.S. has devolved into. So anyway, into this scene, what what's been happening uh, before they? God bless you. Anyway, you're you're excused. In the meantime, up in outer space, the consortium guys, the oligarchs, have been building and stabilizing a new way of life. And they've built these artificial man-made space colonies, these O'Neill cylinders. 
Okay, what's an O'Neill cylinder for those of us like me that don't know what that means? I was glad you asked. I was hoping you would. So if you look at my video in in the link on the Indiegogo page, you'll see a uh, a still image of some O'Neill cylinders. But what they are is they are, I believe, the most viable proposed actual form of artificial space colony. Essentially, they are 32-kilometer-long metal and glass tubes, okay, that counter-rotate to simulate 1G of gravity on the inside. Okay. And then half of the inside area is solid, and half are these huge windows that run the length of the tube, and they alternate. So you get a, a window strip, a land strip, a window strip, a land strip, et cetera. And then hinged over the window strips are these huge angled mirrors that reflect sunlight into the colony simulating daylight. Okay, so it's kind of like at the end of uh, Interstellar, where they show you like, yeah. the, like the guys, in, he comes back and there's like the cornfield going off and then you actually see where the cornfield is and it's this giant space station looking thing with like strips of water and strips of farmland and housing and stuff right. like that. That is an O'Neill cylinder in Interstellar. Yeah, the, the the mirrors are covered with water to form lakes. Okay. Oh, sorry, the, the windows are. So yeah, and they're and they're the colonies used in the original mobile suit Gundam. I probably should have said from the beginning. <laughs> but yeah, so these uh, these oligarchs have built these colonies, and they, they build them at the Earth Moon Lagrange points. Short version: a Lagrange point is a mathematically defined point in space where you can set something in a stable orbit. Okay. And there, there are five of them in the Earth-Moon system. So there's one between us and the moon. There's one on the other side of the moon. There's one on the opposite side of the Earth, on the upside of the sun from Earth. And then there are two more angles to like... Um, Rather, I should say there, there's one on the opposite side of the moon, of the Earth from the moon, I'm, because there are also Sun, Earth, Lagrange points. Okay. Let's keep that up, but I'm not an astronomer or the mathematician. I'm just a story talker. So, so these guys didn't, they didn't run off to like Mars or you know, like Titan or something like that. Like they stayed around Earth. There has been some exploration on Mars and it actually gets into some of the deeper lore of the series. I don't want to spoil anything yet. Okay. But no, they mainly stayed closer to home just in case they had to come back. Right. And in case it didn't work out. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause you also don't have faster than light travel yet. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So they're mainly pulling in asteroids from the asteroid belt, mining them out, using the materials to make the colonies. And then they turn the, they, they also have it, or occupy the um, the mined out asteroids. So anyway, they've done all this. Life in space has stabilized, so they now finally have time to stop focusing on the doggy dog cutthroat matter of survival in the most hostile environment possible. And they got a lot of free time on their hands. So for the first seven hundreds of years, they look back at Earth. They're like, "Whoa, wonder wonder what uh, our, our kinfolk on Earth are doing. Wonder what they're up to." Let's check. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> like, oh, wow. 
Wow. <laughs> that went yeah. bad fast. That went poorly. It's a good yeah, thing we got out of there. Quick. They stabbed a man with a trident. Yeah, it's, uh... So they're horrified. Not just by the relative decline in technology, but they're actually freaked out by the fact that there are now monarchies, some of them openly theocratic on Earth, because um, the space colonists had to adapt a way of life that most of us would consider alien. So breakdown in nuclear family structure, a lot of cloning going on, pretty much living by, like that Campbellian big men of screwdrivers, secular, utilitarian worldview, you know, so okay. yeah, it kind of spurred some out of space. <laughs> and so they decide we are going to help the earth. We're going to get back, we're going to go back down there because we feel kind of bad. Our ancestors stole all their gold and stuff. And we're going to elevate them up to our level. So what most of the companies I'm, do I'm is I'm imagining they, that works out wonderfully. Oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see. So, <laughs> So the colonies do is they all get together, everybody except for the L3 colonies who are, are more independent. Um, they were the ones that were formed mainly by settlers from like America and, and Western Europe and Australia and stuff. So, but all the other Lagrange points, which can basically be equated to a, a nation in population size, form a charter for kind of a space UN that they call the Systems Over Terrestrial Coalition. And they are chartered to re-civilize the Earth. So coalition forms this big, top-heavy bureaucracy and starts sending emissaries, sending emissaries to Earth. And you predicted correctly. The folks on Earth are like, hey, who are these meddling aliens who are all weird and telling us how to do stuff? <laughs> Let's get them. So they actually view them as like it, like War of the Worlds kind of like you you are extraterrestrials you are not from this planet what what the hell are you doing coming down here trying to tell us how to live kind of thing yeah the in the more extreme so, examples so it's yeah. like childhood's end if Earth had been able to actually fight back against the Satan looking aliens in that in that book yeah and and the socks as they're playfully called are are still human looking but it's just their their actions their demeanor and their their holier-than-thou attitude. So, yeah, it's mainly a, a matter of rhetoric that some some grounders, some people of Earth, call them aliens. But they're definitely alien in outlook compared to how the how society on Earth has devolved or evolved, depending on how you look at it. So there's definitely conflict here. The problem is it's completely asymmetrical. The coalition is coming down to technology that is centuries in advance of what Earth still has. Cause so these guys are be running around with swords and, and like old machine guns and stuff like that. And these guys come down with like mechs and laser weapons. and Basically, yeah. And yeah, they, they do come down with mechs after the first few coalition embassies are, are firebombed by Molotov cocktail-wielding mobs. So... What the coalition, the coalition secretary does is, so first they set up the coalition security core to protect their interests and citizens on Earth. And they appoint a guy named Sanzen Kaimura to be the first director of the CIC. Now, they appoint him because he's kind of an oddball for a sock. 
he's actually studied Earth military history and fancies himself something of a strategist. So like, he he read he read his Sun Tzu and his Miyamoto Musashi, and then he figured, mm-hmm. well, I can handle this. Exactly. His main training is as an exo-historian doing archaeological digs on Mars. And even the Secretary General of the Coalition doesn't quite know exactly why he got nominated, but um, the Colony Development Commission, which they, they are the big enchiladas, they are in charge of even the SOC, they're in charge of all the colonies. Like five members of that commission nominated him to be the first CSC director. Really kind of over the objections of the SecGen. So Sanz and Secretary General Mitsu have this political rivalry going on. She would rather pacify the earth through diplomacy and like reaching out, doing humanitarian works. And he says, no, the only language these people understand is force. If you want a peaceful earth, you're going to have to conquer them. You're going to have to go in and make it peaceful through superior firepower. Right. If you want peace, prepare for war. <clears throat> I mean, he's not precisely wrong there, so. <laughs> no, that's the thing. He's got an argument. So he's the first one to send combat frames to Earth. Okay. So he, yeah, was, he was the first guy who's like, no, we're going to take our big stompy robots and we're going to go down there and we're going to, you know, you're going to get down or you're going to lay down and then we're going to make you lay down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're you're on the trolley. Now, where Sanzen got the idea to use combat frames is there was a self-trained engineer from L3. Uh, nobody knows his real name, but he went under the handle of Tesla Browning. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> wink wink <laughs> yeah and what Browning did was he just like hey here's this work frame you know kind of picture the, the load lifter from aliens right, right. Pretty, pretty crude used for construction of the colonies it's a, it's a bipedal self motivated manned vehicle that can operate on land or in space and I'm going to duct tape a minigun to it and see what happens <laughs> I like Bam, the way this guy frame. thinks this is the best engineer of all time. Like you, you got this great, uh, this great labor-saving device, and he was like, "But what if guns?" That's what he did. <laughs> and then Seed Corporation, which had actually been the largest supplier of agricultural equipment to the colonies, approached him through their bank and said, "Well, hey, we've been looking at expanding into military hardware. We already make shoes and snack foods, okay." Why not stomping likes with guns? I mean, so we, we want to buy I the license. Think, I can't think of a single reason why not. I know, neither can he. So he's like, all right, I'll I'll sell you the rights to to combat frames. So they, they brought Browning on as their lead combat frame engineer because he, he's the only combat frame engineer. And he whipped up some prototypes. They showed him to Sanzen, and Sanzen was like, sold. <laughs> and so wait, don't you have to Ask your spirits for, I said sold. The part of sold you not understand. I want a million of them tomorrow. Yep. So I just went over the section's head and the commission's head and just ordered a complete production run of the things and started shipping them to Earth. And things started escalating from there. So that's the coalition's end. Well then, with the comet frames, 
the coalition just went into like these new monarchies and these shaky city states, just rolled over and just plowed them over. <laughs> just flattened them. I would imagine night. with that with that level of technology, yeah, they probably would. Yeah. And I really like uh, the way that you that you conquered the whole like resource argument because I've seen this this argument all over the place. Yeah. Back when uh, like Pacific Rim was really really big, um, people were talking about well, could we actually do this? Like, if something like this happened, could we make these giant stompy robots to defend us from these alien monsters? And basically, the general consensus was no, we don't have the right kind of resources, and even if we did, the physics wouldn't really precisely work out. So I like the way that you conquered the whole resources argument with they just pull asteroids out of the thing and just just mine the minerals out of them. That's how they make them. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Earth really doesn't have combat frames at first. At first. <laughs> yeah. At first, because that, that's the thing about Seed Corp. I mean, they're government contractor, but they're not a government agency. So I mean, if you if you got the money, you can buy a combat frame from them and they'll sell you one. So some some private citizen can just be like, I want one to just have in my backyard. Yeah, you remember the the Pepsi points contest a while ago, a few years ago, where in the commercial they had a Harrier jet and they said it was like ten million Pepsi points or something, and some people actually went and got enough Pepsi points together to buy the Harrier jet. To, to buy the jet. Buy. <laughs> it's like so, it's false advertising if you don't. Oh man, that's awesome. So there's somebody out there with a Harrier jet because they drink Pepsi. Well, they were going to, uh, I believe it ends sadly, because I do think in this case, the government stepped in and said, no, you, a private citizen cannot own a Harrier jet. But uh, yeah, on Earth, governments are shaky at best. Who's going to stop you? Basically. And it's it's like nearly full Ancapistan from what I'm, from what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, especially the FMAS, yeah. So you can go ahead and have your child soldiers enact Clause 16 of your totally voluntary slave agreement to uh, rain down white phosphorus on your escaping voluntary slaves <laughs> into industrial peyote fields. It's all good. Oh, that's awesome. And the coalition wants to stop all that. How dare they? Authoritarian Plus, bastards. Yeah. And their child labor laws. Who are, who are they to say that those kids aren't happy shooting other children? They look happy. They're all full of brown brown, which is also legal. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I thought about this. So <laughs> so then for the, the Earth end, the, the sovereign governments of Earth get exiled again. And this time, they're largely driven not only out of Europe, out of Africa, but onto the the sole remaining fleet of clunky, like previous century aircraft carriers in the Atlantic. So they're seasteading. Yeah, they're, they're out in international waters on this flotilla of six leaky aging aircraft carriers, undersupplied, overworked. Uh, they're, they're funded by the dwindling fortunes of the last few royal families. But algae paste. Yeah, but they, they still call themselves the rightful Earth governments or the EGE, the Earth governments in exile. Okay. And they maintain a scrappy little military force, um, mainly of fighter jets. They, they again, they, they have a 
couple of combat frames just so they can scavenge or steal or buy. But they mainly try to leave the coalition alone and act as like uh, peacekeepers or third-party observers. They, they would rather negotiate than poke the bear. And for the most part, the coalition doesn't really even think of them. Just it's like, oh, yeah, those guys are there. Yeah, whatever. They ain't hurting nobody yet. Yeah. Yeah, Sansa has different ideas, but, I mean, uh, again, they're pretty far down on his list of enemies. So, okay, with the with the Earth governments in exile again, um, and the Coalition coming down to kind of pacify humanity, essentially, <clears throat> mm-hmm. is, are his enemies just like rebel groups or something like that? Like, people, like, who would be more dangerous than this Coalition with, you know, the, or the, the Earth governments in exile? Um, who would be more dangerous than them? Is Are there, like, some really well-equipped mercenary groups out there or something? Oh, you're, you're reading my mind. You're, you're reading all the <laughs> Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to savor that for a second. Okay. Yeah, what, what's more dangerous than the Coalition? I assure you, there's something, there's at least one thing, one, I, I hesitate to say person, but yeah, let's, let's go with that, that, uh, that is immeasurably more dangerous than the Coalition is, because for all their wealth and military might, and they have more wealth than all of the emperors and oligarchs and pharaohs of human history combined times ten. All right, theirs is the bounty of the asteroid field. Yeah, these guys are just super wealthy, super well-equipped. No one can really stand against them, so that's what I'm wondering is, like, who... Who would be the guy who who would stand up and say, "I'm going to take you on," and not only am I going to, I have the ability to? Yeah, that's a great question. But keep in mind, they are also EU style bureaucrats, and none of us is as dumb as all of us. <laughs> that's a so good point. They are also rather indecisive. They're torn by internecine rivalries. So on the one hand, you've got Mitsu saying, oh, let, let's mother them, let's let's nurture them, let's be nice to them. And Sansa's like, no, we're going to crush them. We've got to beat them down until they can't stand up anymore. Let's let's throw some rocks down in the Midwest to get a nuclear winter and destroy their arable land so they can either join us or starve to death. Going with the Brianna yeah. Wu space rock thing? Yeah. <laughs> so They're going to weaponize so they, the moon. So it's mainly, the Coalition is really its own worst enemy. I hope there's an Alex Jones character in this book that just spouts a, a bunch of insane bullshit that turns out to be right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That is a good idea. I also like, I like adding an A to the end of EGE and officially making it the Earth Governments in Exile again. <laughs> I'd have to do that. But, yeah, so the Coalition is really its own worst enemy, and it 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 kind of gives birth to a golem of it's its own making. It sows the seeds of its own undoing. Um, what are you going to tell you about that? Oh, okay. So there there are, though, some dissident groups. The foremost among them being the L3 colonies. They are really not down with what Sanzen is doing on Earth, mainly because they realize, well, if this guy succeeds and the coalition achieves unchecked hegemony over Earth, what happens when socks get bored? They look for stuff to meddle in. So they're going to come after us and force us into the SOC. 
And these guys, these guys are like the independent colonies. They, you know, they're kind of of the uh, philosophical tradition of like the the founding fathers, I guess you could say. Like America's founding fathers. That like, you know, we like our liberty, we like our guns, and we don't want you coming over here and telling us what to do. Right. That's where Browning, you know, the guy was like, hey, work for him plus gun. Chocolate (laughs) and peanut butter. That's where he's from. (laughs) Right. So their prime minister uh, is a dude named Joseph Freelander. And he becomes a vocal opponent of Sans and like they uh, get all sorts of little flamers online. They, they verbally spar back and forth in the papers, that kind of thing. There's just this, this epic enmity between the two of them. And uh, what Friedlander doesn't count on is the lengths to which Sansen will play for keeps. So the very, very beginning of the book, right before the book starts, Sansen seizes Friedlander's wife and daughter's shuttle and arrests them. Okay. Oh, frankly, there's a jurisdiction, so he just flat out kidnaps his political rival's wife and daughter. <laughs> this is sounding like something out of, like, South American politics. Which Sansen is right about, so probably not too far off. So, yeah, I mean, he plays that card um, and doesn't even have to tell Freelander to shut up or else. I mean, he uh, he sends him one of his daughter's silk pink uh, hair ribbons, that, and that's all he sends him. That's the only message he gets. Ooh. Yeah, he gets the picture. Well... I, it, it, hey, that's more merciful than some guys I've heard about. At least he's not sending back, like, fingers or something. Oh, no, it turns out... Um, I'm not going to spoil it, but no, he's not merciful at all. It's It's worse <laughs> than... He does something worse than sending fingers. Oof. Oh, boy. You'll see. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then there's uh, Sanzen's uh, adjutant, his, his assistant, uh, Sakai no Megami, who is even worse than him, but we'll, we'll get to her later. So, anyway, um, the Freelander has a son named Zeeg, who's of fighting age. He'd actually been in the L3 uh, Armed Forces. He'd uh, actually been in the, the Officer Academy when this happened. So he just drops out and uses his own resources through... Um, well, he's also helped by an org- organization called Zodiac, which is kind of a tortured French acronym that means like basically the, the demilitarized colonies which is another covert anti-coalition group based in L3. Okay. So at the very beginning of the book, Zeke mounts this rescue mission to get his mom and his sister back from Sanzen. And it's not too much of a spoiler since it's online and you already, you already mentioned it, it goes poorly. It does not, it does not end well for Zeke. Yeah. (laughs) No, it, it does not end well at all um i I mean we could we could get into spoilers about the the first chapter at least since that i know is up on your blog and you know anybody who wants to can go and read it it's not like we're it's not like we're giving too much away and i don't even really view like just on the topic of spoilers first chapter stuff i'm perfectly cool with giving stuff like that away just like if i'm talking about a book that i like or something because the first chapter is basically meant to get you to read the rest of the book. I think it was uh, Jack Ketchum who said that, you know, your your opening sentence 
is meant to make the person read the second sentence. And then the second mm-hmm. sentence is to make them read the rest of that paragraph. And then that paragraph is to, and so on and so on and so on. So like the stuff that happens in the very first chapter is meant to make you interested in what's ha- happening in the rest of the book. So I wouldn't really, if, if you want to give stuff like that away, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Let, I think I know how I can approach this with a minimum of spoilers. Other Gundam fans have told me that the opening of Combat Prime Exceed is very much like the opening episode of Mobile Suit Gundam inverted, just turned inside out. Hmm. It's been a so, long time since I've watched Mobile Suit Gundam. How do you mean? Okay, well, in the, the very first episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, you have three operatives of the Principality of Xeon. Mm-hmm. Okay, and remember that the the story of Mobile Suit Gundam was this uh, group of colonies that had declared independence from the Earth Federation, which called themselves the Principality of Xeon, were fighting a war of independence against the government based from Earth. And you can see how Comet Frame Exceed reverses that. This is about a government based in outer space trying to dominate the Earth. And the Earth's rather feeble attempts to fight back with the aid of a small band of dissenters in the colonies. Okay. Yeah, I get so what the, you mean there. Yeah, so the milieu is backwards. Well, and then in the very first episode of Gundam, we have three Xeon operatives infiltrating a Federation facility on a Federation colony to gather intelligence on this this new weapon called the Gundam. Whereas in Combat Frame Xseed, the the actual namesake mech, the, the Xseed doesn't appear until near the end of the book. I can tell that right now. Okay. So I've also inverted the timetable for when the Xseed and the Gundam appear, because in Mobile Suit Gundam, the, the Gundam super prototype comes first, and then they riff on that and produce like the GMs and other less powerful mobile suits that are mass produced. In Combat Frame Xseed, we start with the relatively weaker grunt mass produced Comet frames and gradually evolve upward to the XC. So it follows a more realistic um, technological timetable. Yeah, and I, I try to be a bit um, more grounded with, with the tech. I mean, as much as I can in a giant robot book, right? <laughs> but if you look at my blog, I've got I've done um, like the actual Jane's defense style stats on most of these mecha. So like you can find how many kilowatts there. Generators put out how many kilograms of thrust their their rockets output. I mean, how many metric tons they weigh. So I get pretty granular. Like using using actual physics, not yeah. like not like war gaming this, but like if if you if this thing actually existed, this is what it would weigh. This is what its weapons would do. That kind of thing. Yes. Okay. With some artistic license, but I'm uh, I've consulted with some military folks and some folks who know their way around, like, shall we say, nuclear technology. So I told him just to make sure I'm good enough for punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> but I've got some experts uh, helping me out with this. So, yeah, anyhow. So that's what I do. I, I, I inverted the technological evolution timeline. So what you have in the first chapter of Combat Frame Exceed is a group from Zodiac, led by Zeke Friedlander, in the most primitive, not even combat frames, in work frames. 
like with knives. Yeah, you you mentioned in the in the story that his his mech his uh, work frame has a toolbox on its belt or the equivalent of its belt. Yeah, because they're there under the guise of contractors with uh, falsified work orders to repair something. And then they just they jump a guy and steal his gun and then think that they're going to take on the entire army with this one gun. Well, they come close. <laughs> At least I mean, he does. He gets he gets yeah. three of them. I'll give him that. He gets three of them. Yeah, so it's these underdogs with these not even military grade mechs that go up against the current gen, the new hotness, Grensmark twos in an ambush. But yeah, their their initial plan is yeah, we'll just storm the castle, we'll break into Sunzen's compound. We will get my mom and sister out. We will hightail it for the shuttle. So they, they're hoping they can do a snatch and grab because their intel has told them no one knows you're coming. They're not expecting this. And the, they, they don't know that the compound is as well guarded as it is because turns out someone set them up. Someone fed false intel. And by the end of the book, you'll be able to figure out who it is because there's one character who, whose M.O., is just feeding disinformation to the enemy. And Zeke falls prey to that. Okay. There is a voice you hear at the very end of the chapter. I believe it's the last verbally spoken line, not the, the last internal monologue, because that's Zeke's. But that voice belongs to the one who screwed him over. Oh, the icy woman's voice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would actually say girl. Girl, okay. That's interesting. Like, like teen. Ah, because uh, the way that I had kind of interpreted that was she was like, like she was in charge of some shit. So I assumed that she was like an older woman. I might have to go and re-record that line. <laughs> uh, no, she is in charge. But uh, sorry, that's my fault if I if I didn't specify. But no, uh, yeah, she she isn't very much in command. But uh, she's fourteen. Okay. Yeah, I'm probably gonna have to go and re-record that line. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one line. Yeah, it's not a big deal. So there you go. So that's uh, anything else you want to know about chapter one? Oh, um, I don't know. There's just there's a lot there. There's there's a lot going on in that. So you went over the the pink ribbon that he had. Um, mm -hmm. His friends, I assume, are also a part of Zodiac. Um, yeah, by association, he basically drafts him in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with friends like that who needs enemies right <laughs> well it's mentioned that Zeke doesn't have many close friends and the reasons might not be the reasons he thinks mm, okay because remember it's filtered he's a perfect he's the POV character so everything is filtered through his perspective yeah yeah all right well uh, okay so let's see um there's the false intel there's the ambush uh, the shuttle. So e everything went south. Like the entire plan was revealed. Yeah, let, let's just say Zeke's plan entirely went south. Someone else's plan went off perfectly without a hitch. Okay, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that well, not really interesting, but you you know what I mean. Like <laughs> um, people I, I've seen people complain about you know, uh, with novels saying that everything works out a little bit too perfectly for the main characters. Like they're always in the exact, like you read Dragonlance and everything works out a little bit too well for them. Like nobody in the main 
in the main cast dies in the first Dragonlance book when there were myriad opportunities for them to just eat it. Um, it, it seems it, it seems a little bit it seems a little bit too perfect that Sieg was the one that lived. Um, especially given what happened, because like they they blow up the shuttle and like all of his friends that he brought on the mission are dead and you know he's his mech's arms and legs are blown off and he's just kind of floating through space um so i'm wondering how he gets out of it but you know you don't have to spoil anything i actually do want to read the book well it's actually not a spoiler if you reread the end of that chapter it's clearly said why he survives hmm. okay it's right there because right. he he almost didn't Remember, there's a guy. Remember who's on the radio? Look at the SOC radio chatter. Okay. Yeah, there's that that one guy who's like, you know, should we go and look for that that Grenzi that was out there? <clears throat> yeah, and if they would have found it, he he would have been dead. Yeah, but I mean, but, uh, in an explosion like that, I can see why they didn't bother going and looking for him. Right. There's plausible deniability. Oh, that changes things. <laughs> yeah very very interesting i think i see where you're going with this this is like this this is what i really like about uh books like this is the whole like political intrigue and backbiting like have you ever read um the farseer trilogy by robin i would highly recommend it it's a fantasy story but it's it like it starts off it's all first person point of view um and it's Mm -hmm. this little kid He's a bastard son of the prince, and they actually find him and bring him into the castle. And Mm -hmm. he could screw up literally everything just by existing. Like, the entire political structure could be completely screwed just by this one guy living. Um, So there's all of these people trying to help him and and, uh, trying to kill him and things like that. And he eventually gets made uh, the the first book, The Assassin's Apprentice. The, The king's brother is an assassin. And nobody knows this guy is alive, so they just, like, bring him into this secret room. It's like, all right, I'm going to teach you how to kill people for, for royalty. <laughs> but there's, sweet. there's all of this, like, intrigue and backbiting and just politics going on in this book that don't, that don't reflect, like, normal, you know, the politics of the day kind of thing. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't written to be an allegory about, like, Bush Clinton or whatever, whenever the first book came out. Um it's all it's all very self-contained and that seems like what you're going going for with this like there's politics in this book but it's not meant to be an allegory for anything that's happening like nowadays or or something like that right no it's it's definitely not i i try to stay away from allegories and i i know there's been some controversy lately over the oh do you, do you put politics in fiction or do you leave politics totally out of fiction i leave propaganda out of fiction there you go And I don't want people to get the idea that, oh, this this is just a taut techno thriller espionage story with window dressing of giant robots in space. No, I I I blow stuff up. Okay. Yeah, no, you you absolutely do blow stuff up. There's plenty of action in that first chapter. (laughs) Yeah, this is an action book. This is an adventure book. Really, the political stuff is more of the backdrop that recedes more into the background as as we get going which you'll see as you read the other two sample chapters because one two and three are available actually Mm, okay i didn't know you had put up the third one i knew that the second one was up but i hadn't i hadn't taken a look at it i didn't know that you had put the third one up too yeah the third one introduces the book's actual protagonist 
Oh, so Zeke isn't the protagonist of the book? No, he's not. Oh, so this is, okay, you're pulling a Lord of the Rings. I see what you're doing here. Everybody thinks that Frodo is the protagonist, the hero of the Lord of the Rings. Turns out mm-hmm. it's Sam. Kind of. I'm I'm doing more more of a mobile suit Gundam. One of uh one of one of our friends, yeah, even my mutual Twitter friends, figured this out. He figured out what Zeke is because Zeke is a Gundam trope. Oh, I th- oh god, I think I know who you're talking about. They said that he was Char, didn't they? He's the Char. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and. What what that means to the folks at home is in uh, in Mobile Suit Gundam, the two main characters of the series are Char Aznable and Amuro Ray. Amuro is the protagonist; he's the kid who pilots the Gundam. But he and Char don't necessarily have just a straight protagonist antagonist relationship. It's it's really complicated and really compelling because they're they're more alike than either one would like to admit. But. Yeah, if I remember right, Char was the guy, uh, the blonde guy with the sunglasses. Or am I thinking right. of somebody? No, that was Char? Okay. That is Char. He has the sunglasses in Zeta Gundam in the second series. In the first one, he has the like the, the mask and the helmet. That was it. Yeah, the mask and the helmet. Yeah. Sorry. It's easy to get confused. There's so many Gundams running around. <laughs> right. And there's a Char in each one. There's a character pattern on him in every Gundam series. Really? Yeah. Such that the Char is a trope. It's like <laughs> Dex is the Char of Gundam Wing. Okay. Yeah. Right. He's probably the best Char, other than Char. But anyway. I'm going to have to I, I go and watch Gundam. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, in, in the character of Char Asimov, I find him compelling because, okay, he starts out, you're introduced to him. He is this Xeon ace pilot officer who's kind of this man of mystery, and he's serving under the Zabi family, which you find out actually usurped the Principality of Zeon from the rightful ruler, Zeon Daikun, who's the guy who came up with their entire motivating philosophy, and then the Zabi family just came in and Hitlerized it and warped Zeon's his thing, his uh, his original motivation. And it's, it's 30 years old, but spoiler alert, it turns out Char has an ulterior motive. He's actually Zeon Daikun's son, who okay. joined the Zion military under a false name to get revenge. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go and rewatch Mobile Suit Gun. This is the original one. This is from like yeah. 1971 or 78, I think. 79. 79, that was it. 79. <clears throat> yeah. So he starts off as uh, this character who's out for revenge, gets it. Then in the second series, uh, Zeta Gundam shows back up on the side of the good guys. And then by the uh, his, his third appearance, Char's counterattack, he has just ascended to become a, a total ideologue. He has given in to ideology, and he's decided we need to make Earth uninhabitable for a while, A, to force mankind out into outer space so they'll evolve, and B, to give Earth's environment a rest and let the planet recover from the depredations of mankind, and he doesn't care about killing millions to achieve that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not going to say that Zeke follows the exact same arc, but he fills the the Char side of the uh, Amuro Char equation in Exceed. Okay, and it's Todd Ritter who is is more of the 
originally young, plucky, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed protagonist who kind of gets gets caught up in a world he never made. All right, I feel where you're coming from with that. So is this? Uh, now, it, this seems like you're doing a more real robot thing rather than super robot. Yeah. Okay. So do do super robots show up? Like, does Todd get like the 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 exceed, which is like the the top of the line newest thing. Is he is he going to be the pilot of that, and then it's going to be like you know him fighting against all of the hordes of of the socks and stuff? Or well, again, I, I don't I'm spoil... asking you to give too much away here. <laughs> well, no, you're actually setting it up rather well. Um, I, I will tell you that you can tell by the name who builds the exceed. I mean, it's a stupid corporate logo, right? Yeah. So it's from Seed Corp, is what Xseed means. Okay. I actually chose I, I chose the name based on rather lame, unimaginative uh, corporate brands like SpaceX, right, or Virgin Galactic, or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was wondering. I was going to ask if uh, SpaceX actually shows up in the story, but I think Elon Musk might have a problem with that. By inference. <laughs> <laughs> So talk about this this uh, millionaire from back in the day of Earth who started us getting out into space on a, a like a pri- uh, yeah private sector kind of space co- corporation. And I'm just gonna say it. It's it's basically guys like Branson and Bigelow and Musk and Cook and Zuckerberg and Gates who formed the coalition. <laughs> okay. So not not yeah. specifically those guys, but people like them, or like yeah. their their um, counterparts in this world. They're they're heirs because I, I'm just projecting this from the real world. Okay, so this is not alternate history. So yeah, I mean, I'm actually saying that the dudes who in like the next generation or so take charge of those companies, yeah, they're the ones who screw us and steal all our gold and flee to space. And then you have the ones that are more like focused on like personal liberty and things like that. Yeah. But they still have a butt ton of money and they still kind of went along with this. Let's just run to space kind of thing. Yeah. Because they didn't want the torch and pitchfork bearing mobs to to DOTR them. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. That's what they did. Um, So yeah. So seed corp builds the X seed for the coalition. Okay, so this was supposed to be a weapon for the the space government to go down to Earth and just kind of make it easier to pacify these people. Because, I mean, with the level of technology, like with the Grensmarks and stuff like that, given what you've told me about the uh, the Earth governments, it, it really seems like just with the Grensmarks, they could just roll over Earth. It would just take a little bit more time. Yeah, that's a good point. So the Exceed's initial purpose... I'll, I'll just go ahead and spill the beans on this because it's it's really a matter of trivia. Um, yeah, it's just a doomsday weapon. It's it's not built to pacify Earth. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, so this is like it, this is their atom bomb kind of thing. This is the Enola Gay for their atom bomb. Oh, all right. Yeah, the Xseed itself, as powerful as it is, yeah, it's just one component of something way way worse yeah i think you would you were talking about this um when we did the agundum for us thing with Rawl and bradford 
the the whole uh, I can't remember the name, but the the super weapon that you were talking about that we actually have today, with like the, su- oh, yeah, the super uh... dense or super hard uh, chemicals that you would have to like stand an elephant on top of a pencil to get it to punch through it or something like that. Yeah, graphene, graphene and carbine. Um, graphene you can think of as basically two dimensional diamond saran wrap. Okay. Okay, and then carbine is one-dimensional diamond, like, filament. I suppose that makes sense. I mean, I'm not, I'm not pretending to understand, like, the chemistry yeah. here. I'm not, I'm not a chemist or a scientist or anything like yeah. that, so. <laughs> hey, you mean both, buddy. I, I ask guys way smarter than me about this stuff. They, they assure me it's on the level. So, yeah, the thing about graphene and carbine is uh, they're, they're superconductors. They're the toughest stuff known. And um, they're they're pretty expensive to make right now, but they are easier to make in a vacuum and where it's really cold and in zero gravity. So, hey, guess who's got lots of those things? <laughs> so you, yeah. you can make it easier there. Does it does it function the same way in, in a vacuum as it does, like, on a planet like Earth? That, that's a really good question. I would love to ask a physicist about that because I'm sure you're like, oh, man, let me tell you what this stuff can do in a vacuum. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> but... What uh, the application I use it for mainly um, is first and foremost in the Xseeds armor, and it's not just there to make it tougher, although it does, because by the point the Xseed comes along, we, we have directed plasma weapons, okay? I mean, stuff that's thrown around like a couple of megawatts of power at a couple million Kelvins. So, sorry, nothing is going to repel that. Um, the way to survive against an enemy who is using a plasma weapon is to not be there when he shoots. <laughs> so that's what they tell the pilots. Okay, like the best dodge is to not be there. Um, yeah. Is there is there is this like plasma in Warhammer 40k? Because there's like in the actual game, um, it doesn't really usually work out this way in the novels unless you know something relevant to the plot has to happen. But in the game, if you have this is why none of my none of my uh, my models use plasma weapons mm-hmm. incidentally. But uh, every time you fire a plasma weapon, you have to roll like a d6 or something like that. And if it comes up on one, the weapon explodes and it kills the guy who's using it. And it, if anybody is next to him, it can kill them too. So is it kind of like that? Is there like a chance of this thing blowing up every time it's fired? Or do we relatively no. have a handle on this? Uh, we get a handle on it with the um, recovery of the dead drop combat frame built by a genius savant Zane Delister. Okay. He's the first guy to figure it out because... What we have at the beginning of the book is you, you've got plasma weapons mounted on like space stations and capital ships because it's easier to stabilize when you, you've got a big enough generator and when it's big enough, right? Okay. You've got the infrastructure to support it. But even though they, they are used sparingly because there's not much to use it against. Like they're mainly used like for you know heating up sides of asteroids to move them and stuff like that. Or uh, getting rid of space debris and space junk. But they're had been this quest to produce directed plasma weapons for at uh, combat frame sizes, but they couldn't quite crack it. Not even Browning could. And he realized by the debut of the Gren 2 that combat frame technology had evolved to a dead end. He painted himself into a corner. So he's just scrambling for all these ways, like, where can I go from here? And 
this is in the second sample chapter, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. One day, this guy named Zane Delister, former CSC pilot, falls into their lap. Like, the MPs find him holed up in this abandoned warehouse on the Chicago like south side with uh, this Frankenstein black combat frame he built himself from parts he was stealing from the Exceed factory in Chicago <laughs> and from, like, scavenged enemy units and stuff. So, That's awesome. Yeah, like, so he puts six MPs in the hospital while they're arresting him, yeah. So they throw him in the, they throw him in the looty bin. And, um, but they, they take this, uh, this comment frame he built in and have Browning analyze it. And, he's, and he needs to change of pants because here's everything he's been looking for on the plate. It, it has integrated, miniaturized, stable plasma weapons. Okay. Yeah. And so Sanzen actually comes down, tries to get Zane to make a deal. Zane will not cooperate. He just wants Dead Drop back. Uh, but Browning is able to reverse engineer to a limited extent, and he makes the Dolph series of combat frames based on Dead Drop. I see what you're going for here. Okay. Yeah. So did they, did they wind up like hiring this guy to get just to give him his combat frame back or something? Like, I kind of feel bad for this guy. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd read the sample chapter, but they, they try. They, they kind of try to conscript him. Because, no, at this point, he's, he's just pissed off. He just wants to get his combat frame back and then go his own way. But then he finds out they stole his idea and they made what he considers to be mockeries of Dead Drop. So he must destroy them all now. Mm, okay. He's going to devote his life to that. Awesome. That's the best kind of motivation right there. <laughs> yeah, so that is how you can kind of see a potential credible threat to the coalition forming. Because a dude who actually has tech that is more advanced than theirs that he knocked they, they up in his backside. they knocked up in his freaking garage. <laughs> yeah, they rubbed his rhubarb, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. This guy just built this in, in a warehouse somewhere, just like by himself kind of thing. This is yeah. This is kind of why I was wondering about like the whole real robot, super robot thing. For those of you who don't know out there at home, um, real robot is like mass-produced uh, mechs. There's nothing really inherently special about them. They're just like a tank on two legs. Um, super robots are like uh, Gurren Lagann, where mm -hmm. you know they're they're powered by fighting spirit. Essentially, if the guy believes that he can defeat his enemy, then he can defeat his enemy no matter what the specs on the two robots are. Right, and I will say that Dead Drop gets a little closer, but even it has a foot solidly in real-world physics, and there is an explanation for how Delister is able to cobble this thing together, which I hint at in the first book. You're, you're, you're going to get the full explanation in book two or three. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was kind of wondering about that, because you never really... Well, like, well, you have um, Browning, who's like a, a super scientist who, you know, is able to do all of this stuff, but he can't do it on his own. You know, he doesn't have the funding to, to build all of these robots and stuff like that. Um, but this guy, you know, seems really intelligent, working in a warehouse by himself, just building this giant robot, you know, off of scavenged parts. Like, they never explain that in any of, like, the super robot shows that have the mad scientist working alone in his basement mm -hmm. building this giant robot. They never explain where he's able to get the funding or the parts or anything like that. 
Yeah, Zane is totally the mad scientist trope. Two Brownings, self-taught engineer, kind of bootstrap trope, right? So it's kind of like Dr. Wiley versus Dr. Light kind of thing. Or Nikola Tesla versus Thomas Edison. That's a better one. But yeah, either way. Yeah, totally. So have you ever, let me take a different approach here. Have you ever heard of Edgar Casey, America's Sleeping Psychic? Um, I have heard of Edgar Casey, but I'm not all that familiar with him. Yeah, well, for, for the sake of you and the listeners, short primer on Edgar Casey. He was called the Sleeping Psychic because he would claim to go into trances or fugue states. And while in those states, he would deliver answers to questions from what I believe he called the Akashic Record, which is kind of like this collective consciousness that just was this all-knowing repository of all information. And people would often ask him for cures to various ailments. So then pretty serious, like, I have gallbladder cancer. And Casey would be like, okay, here's what you do. Call the pharmacy, like, in, in this city. Tell the pharmacist to, like, compound a mixture of, like, these three otherwise mundane ingredients. And then take that twice a day with, with a glass of water for like six months and then get checked again. And according to people who would work. Hmm. So it wasn't that he was like synthesizing all new chemicals or anything. He was taking mundane stuff we knew about and just putting them together in ways no one ever thought of. So they were, the coalition was already kind of close to plasma technology. Like they, they, they basically had the parts, but Browning had the parts, but didn't know how to put them together in the right order yet, and Zane solved the puzzle. Mm. So he raided Browning's lab. He's like, here, you're doing it wrong. Let me show you. <laughs> That's awesome. It, so, okay, so uh, they, they steal his, his dead drop, yeah. um, and they want him to work for them, but he won't. So I'm assuming at a certain point in the story, he does get dead drop back somehow. Like the, the base that they're holding him in gets attacked or something. And he makes a beeline for the fucking garage and just grabs his mech and skates. Well, the second chapter excerpt just is a Sarah Connor style escape from the mental ward featuring Zane. <laughs> I know what I'm doing after D and D tonight. <laughs> Sweet. You know what you think. Um, I think you. I think you're gonna dig that chapter the most. Oh, I think I will too. Like this whole concept is just so cool. Like it's it's yeah. amazing to me that just one dude came up with this. But I mean, well, it, it's you. You wrote the Soul Cycle series, so I, I don't know why I'm surprised. But this just sounds like such a a cool story. I cannot wait to see the whole thing. This is like telepathy again, because I was just gonna say. Yeah, you know the soul cycle? <laughs> well, no, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but I, I've mentioned in public how long in the making that was. Like, how long I spent writing drafts, writing notes, gaming it out before I even set pen to paper. Yeah, it was like 10 years or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. I was working on XSEED in parallel to that at the same time. So I've been working on XSEED for 15 years before I wrote book one. Wow. <laughs> yeah that's what you guys are in for i trust me i know what i'm doing it, it really my... really pays to prep i guess <laughs> yeah i got my ducks in the row here we're, we're gonna have a good time it's gonna be a ride 
I know where we're going. I'm looking forward to it. I'm already strapped in, man. Just <laughs> all I need is the book. It it's coming. It, it's coming quickly. It's coming along really well. So one question yeah. I did have about the Indiegogo. Um, you had a tier uh, for I, I want to say it was like two hundred dollars or something like that, where you would kill people in the book. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Well, you don't charge two hundred dollars to kill people. Am I charging too little? No, I don't, I don't charge anything to kill people. <laughs> well, so you're, you're an amateur then. Yeah, unfortunately. I, it sounds it sounds kind of like Dan Abnett, um, you know, the guy who wrote the Gaunt's Ghost series for, for 40K. He's got a list of fans um, in his desk that he keeps specifically for when he needs a red shirt. Um, they, they've mm-hmm. specifically requested that he kill them in one of his books. So he's just got this huge list of people and he just pull whenever he needs a red shirt to die, he just pulls it out and grabs a name from one of his fans and puts it in the book. Oh, you know, you're, you're going to like this. You're, you're like this. It wasn't that perk, but it was a similar one. It's the, the build a mech perk, which by the way, as of this recording, we have one left folks. But uh, the, the guy, the, the reader who chose that perk used a Dread Knight from 40K as the visual reference he wants me to use for his comic ring. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be cool. <laughs> yeah, that's actually going to show up in the short story slash novella. I, I don't know exactly how long it's going to run. It'll either, it'll either be a longer short story or shorter novella. I've got planned between book one, Comet Frame X Seed, and book two, Comet Frame X Seed, Coalition Year 40. Okay, that's that's going to be really cool because the Dread Knights are, they are not to be messed with. That's they're they're <laughs> a really powerful mech in 40k. <laughs> if I remember yeah. right, those are the ones from the um, uh, the horrendously overpowered psychic space marines. Like every member of this chapter is psychic. I can't remember what their names oh. are. Oh, yeah, um, it, it escapes me. It's been so long. It's like this silver paladins or something like that i can't remember they're really cool like everybody loves these guys but they're just Mm -hmm. so ridiculously overpowered and they have like all of the best technology and stuff like that like the other the other space marine chapters worry about these guys showing up (laughs) stay up late at night terrified that these guys might like if chaos shows up these guys are going to show up i just i wish i could remember what their names are I, 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 I want to go and look this up. <laughs> All right, go ahead. And we'll stop you. So let's see. Dread Knight 40K. Let me see. I can always cut the the dead. The Grey Knights. That's it. Yeah, the Grey Knights. Uh-huh. You're close. I was, I was close. But yeah, no, that 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 is not something okay. that you want to see coming across the battlefield at you. So this is going to be a very interesting short story. Aren't those the guys who... I don't accuse it here, but borderline skirt with heresy in terms of using hidden machine cybernetics and stuff but they're tolerated because they're so effective yeah like they're every member okay. of the chapter is a psyker and if chaos shows up bad enough they call in the gray knights because their specific chapter doctrine like what they do for the empire mm-hmm. is deal with with chaos and they're like on the down low like you're not supposed to know that these guys exist kind of thing oh okay <clears throat> But yeah, no, that's going to be, oh God, that's going to be cool. Like every time you bring something new up, it's just like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And then that just keeps, keeps happening every time you open your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I want you to, that's what I want to hear. But uh, no, in, in terms of the, I, 
create a character and I will like be a character and I will kill you in a book. That was the first like, platinum tier perk that came to me. And I think I originally got it from a project Larry Korea was involved with a powered tailor. And I do think it was specifically like you can, um, we'll make you a red shirt in Schlock Mercenary or something. But uh, I can't remember exactly, but now it's sold out like immediately. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering, like I was wondering how you met your goal in like, God, it was like four days or something like that, or, or two or three days. I met the goal in 14 hours. 14 hours, that was it. Yeah, it was just like not even the first day. And then I looked at the perks and I was like, oh, he offered to kill people in the book. No wonder he got all this money so fast. <laughs> You clearly read Soul Cycle. I even said in the perk, like if you're having books, you know I'm going to make it interesting. Oh yeah, like anybody that pays you two hundred dollars to kill him in a novel is going to get a good death. <clears throat> yeah, it's going to be really cool. I, I would have bought one of those perks <laughs> if I'd had the money. He fought well, he died well. That'll be the eulogy. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to do more of those for later books because uh, yeah, I I done my research on the Indiegogo before launching it. And everybody said, you make most of your money from the five and $25 perks. But you always want platinum tier for the high rollers who just really want to support you, but don't count on those. And nah, hey, I think like 40% of my money has come from the $100 plus perks. Jesus. So thank you guys. <laughs> very good. You have some some very, very kind fans. <laughs> I I do. But try to treat them well, but yeah, I, I can tell you guys, um, the, the gentleman who bought the Build-A-Mech perk is just all kinds of excited with his mech. He's, he said so publicly in my blog, you can look at the comments, he's, he's so proud of his big, beautiful mech. Uh, I, I would be too, man. Like I say, this. Like, well, that's that's the thing is that like one day this might get optioned for a TV show or a movie or something like that, and then that'll show up in the in the the visual thing like a comic book or, or something like that and you said uh in the last podcast you were on that you're you already have people talking to you about like comic books and and tabletop war games and stuff like that so yeah people want to see this just everywhere and uh that's the thing about being in indies that you can't make that happen until you can and it takes support from readers and listeners like you out there and uh jim i will say there is one build back left buddy Oh man, I don't think I have the money for it. Okay, <laughs> I had to I would, do that. I, I would love, I would love to, I would love to. But if somebody out there gets to it before I'm able to get a hold of the money for it, then hey, you know, you got to it first. First come, first serve. I don't have a problem with it. I would love to build a mech for this show, that, or for this for this book series, though. That would be just out insane cool. <clears throat> well, I can always, if they get sold out, I can always add another one. I do fully control the Indiegogo campaign. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to get a hold of some cash and then talk to you about it. Um, yeah, because man, yesterday we just had like three more create a custom character perks sell out. So yeah, it's, it's been pretty crazy. People people definitely want to see this happen, and I'm I'm really glad that they do. You said you already have the first novel and the second one funded. <clears throat> on yeah, blog, if I second, remember right. Yeah, the first and second are funded. Um, that that was another little tip I read about uh, crowdfunding is that you really want to have the first product done or at least have a prototype to show people so they know you're not just going to take the money and run. And for a book, you definitely want the cover. So yeah. going into this, I had the first draft done and I had the cover. And a bunch of interior line art from 
from Art Anon. God bless him. I got one guy that the, the same dude that did Bradford Walker's awesome art for Star Knight Saga is uh is doing the the comic frames. Yes, it's it's amazing that the guy doesn't want to be named because his art is so good, and I get the feeling that he could get a lot of work out of just what he's doing for for you and Bradford. I I know for a fact he could. Just leave it at that. <laughs> and I, I promise not to not to dox him at all. So, yeah, our our anon wherever you are, my hats off you, sir. Fair enough, man. If he doesn't want to be known, he doesn't want to be known. That's his decision. But the yep. art is really cool. Um, he's doing the art for the uh the trading cards too, isn't he? Yep. We um we we just selected the winners. We're gonna be doing. Let me see if I can remember. We're, we're doing the uh, Type 1, which is the prototype of all combat frames. We're doing the iconic Grinsmark 2. And then we're which doing is, Dead Drop and Vanti. That's the one that you see on the cover, right? The Grinsmark 2? That's a Grinsmark C, actually. Okay. But close enough. Uh, so, yeah, you've got trading cards. You've got the first two novels. And you're also so, being talked to about comic books and tabletop games. And I've got a poster. And a post. Oh, man. <laughs> poster's up. I don't know if people don't know about it, but uh, yeah, guys, poster's up. No one's claimed one yet. And you also get um, get the ebook with it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That's that's something that I never really understand about about like book and comic book Kickstarters and stuff like that. It's like we, we have the ability to make... Um, uh, to make uh, ebook versions of this, so why isn't that included in like all of the perks? It seems like there's some there that there's some people out there that just don't include the ebook in later perks, and it's like, well, why why wouldn't you? You know? Yeah. So I do. So the ebook is bare minimum included in all of my perks, and then in uh, the gold and platinum tier perks, the physical copy is also included in those too. Yeah, that makes sense. You're so good to your fans, man. You guys are good to me. <laughs> I I don't have to get up on Monday and go to a job and listen to like eight different bosses tell me about my TBS report covers. <laughs> I get to write and edit instead. Uh, that's mm, just just awesome. So are you doing the editing for this or are you getting somebody else like uh, like Jaji Lamplighter or, or, or someone or Vox Day to look at it? Well, Jaji, bless her heart. I don't think it would I think she'd agree. Mill SF is not her forte. So yeah, I'm not going with her. And again, I think she would agree. I'm, I'm not the right person to edit a Mecca Mill SF book. <laughs> For Soul Cycle, she was perfect. Yeah, she did a really good job. Yeah, she did a fantastic job. And also, honestly, she didn't edit Ophian Rising either. Because hmm. she I, I went to her and she told me, I have taught you all I know. <laughs> <laughs> like I cannot improve your writing anymore. <laughs> so it was like one of those weird. I I snatched the pebble from the master's hand. What what do I do now? <laughs> well, I got the rock. What do I do with the rock? <laughs> the rock is redeemable for a free small Sunday at Dairy Queen. <laughs> this was all but worth it. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so you're editing them yourself. Yeah, I've already, and the thing is, I wouldn't do it if I weren't fully confident in my abilities. It's something I don't recommend other authors do, but I edited Him of the Pearl myself. I edited Ophian Rising and Strange Matter 
other the the new bits. Strange matter. That was the one that I forgot at the top of the ship. Damn it! I knew there was one book of yours that I'd forgotten to mention. That's all right. It's okay. It's my short story anthology. But yeah, so I've edited three books pretty much on my own. I have all of them beta read, and I get advice from there. But um, I'm just I'm gonna give it to you straight. And of course now. Any any like typos anyone finds in the final book is gonna be thrown in my face. But um yeah, I in terms of vocabulary, I have like the highest vocabulary in English, humanly possible. I have a bigger vocabulary than Vox's. We we've tested it. <laughs> and like yeah, in, in terms of like reading comprehension and ability to spot, like I just I have like a spider sense. I can just it, it grates on me. When like I read a sentence and something's grammatically or, or, or wrong in terms of spelling, just, you're not gonna stop. And also, um, I this isn't all just superpowers, okay? I think I have mild undiagnosed dyslexia hmm. because I cannot skim things. Yeah, like I, I, actually, I have that same problem. I can't like that's why it takes me so long to read any damn thing is because I sit there and read every word because I'm not fully engaged yeah. in the book. Eyes glaze over, you start to miss stuff, skip sentences, things like that. Just can't do it. Yeah, so I have to read like every sentence and paragraph in a book three times. But while I'm doing that, I'm pretty much memorizing the thing and I'm seeing every little nuance and nook and cranny. And um uh, I can do that with my own work too. So, um, yeah, even when Jadju was editing me, he's like, wow, you're joy to edit. I hardly have to do anything. <laughs> you just basically read the book. No, it's fine. Yeah. Go ahead. Print it. And then Fox, uh, he's, he's really busy. And I don't think he does freelance editing. And I don't even want to know if he would chart me if I asked him. So we'd probably have to uh, kick up the Indiegogo goal like at a zero to get him involved so Ooh-wee. <laughs> know, he's uh he's he's got comic book money now man yeah I mean, and the guy knows what he's worth you know he's not a dummy so yeah when you when you know what you bring to the table that that, that counts for a lot you never <laughs> you never have to buy your own drinks but uh <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm just uh i'm going the editing alone yeah best of luck man best of luck with that you know, I, I, I do the editing on my stories, you know, by myself um, because I just don't have the money to hire anybody. So, you know, I'll put something up on Steam it. I'm, I'm the yeah. one who edited that. But then, you know, I'll go back like a, a month later and I'll reread it and then I'll just be like, God damn it. Because, <laughs> you know, after like seven days, you can't change anything on Steam it. You can't edit the story again. <laughs> so, but if, yeah, we ever, okay. if we collect them, there are going to be changes to some of those stories. But uh, or, or like when I. Uh, finally got a hold of that issue of Kirsova that I had uh, got a story published and I started reading the story that I had given to uh, Alexander and I was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I can't believe oh. I let him take this to publishing. <laughs> well, it's on him too. and He knows what he's doing as well. He's also a great editor. I've worked with him. Oh, yeah, but uh, I'm just I'm just like ridiculously critical of my own work. So, you know, it, it's fine. It's good. a good story. I'm not like ashamed of it or anything like that. It's just like there are certain sentences, you know, echoes of words and things like that, that I would have changed had I, you know, more time to go over it. But I went over it like four times before I sent it to him. So now that's good. Four bests is good. Uh, again, it sounds like uh, we our, our work styles jibe a lot. And I know what people are going to say like, oh, oh you guys are going to. One of those Stephen King or George R. R. Martin writers that just isn't edited anymore. His editor just rubber stamps everything. So you got all these bloated, self-indulgent stuff. No, no, we're... I, I can tell 
you're not like that. I'm not like that. If anything, I'm a guy who who is too eager with the scalpel. Like I, I love cutting out stuff from my own work and making it more efficient. Yeah, it's like when I when I was uh, really trying to get that that Lester Dent story structure down. Um, mm-hmm. even while I was writing, it's like, I would write a sentence and then be like, okay, this is too clunky. I need to change this. I need to take words out. I need to look up a word to replace this entire phrase right here. There's got to be something I can do to make this more punchy. You know? Yeah. Preacher, preacher brother, uh, good Friday, the new story in strange matter. Uh, it was the first one I wrote according to Lester Dent's master formula. And yeah, I ran into a lot. Of... Sorry, you broke up there for a second. Oh, yeah. You ran well, into I, a I lot of, saying... uh, a lot of that, a lot of the same, same you did. Oh, uh, yeah. It's just like that, like that, that story structure seems ridiculously simple when he's explaining it to you. It's just like, it's like a blog post that that's him explaining how to write <laughs> like this. And then you actually try and apply it. And it's like, oh shit, this actually takes work to master. <laughs> yeah. You know, boiling an entire story, like a three act story into 6,000 words. is just like, oh God, shoot me. <laughs> But well, it's, it's you... also really fun to, you know, test yourself and try to, you know, give yourself goals to accomplish and, you know, st- see if you can do that while still writing an entertaining story that people like. And you know. See, that's why I can tell you're serious, because something a lot of people don't realize is that writing is a craft with a set of rules and a set of standards, just like anything else, just like being a plumber or a carpenter or a mathematician, or, or a physicist, or a painter, or a visual artist, there are skills you have to master, and it's hard, and it takes a long time. Oh, yeah. Like, now, I think I've just about got the Lester Dent thing. I still have stuff to work on, because some of my stories come out to be a little bit too long. Like, oh, there's, an, there's an extra 18 words in this story. What do I do? Um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But I think I've, I think I've just about got it down. I just need to start writing again i've been wanting to get into the novel game um I try my mm. hand at that but i like i'm i'm starting to realize that you can't just write a novel from scratch with no planning so i'm having to go through and like come up with backstories and and how this world is set up and you know what has this character been doing for the past 20 years and things like that i can't just make all this stuff up on the fly <clears throat> you're gonna do an outline yeah <laughs> i have i have trouble working from outlines but uh I, it's just one of those things man like you said it's a craft there are certain skills that you have to learn and writing from an outline is one of them and you have to get good at it and it's like dominica was talking about in one of her blog posts from i think last year you can't just let a story get away from you you know you're the mm-hmm. writer you know the story has to follow what you said it follows i mean if if a certain paragraph or you know a chapter gets away from you a little bit then it's not that big of a deal but at a certain point you have to be able to rein in your muse and make it work for you yeah absolutely so uh was there anything else that you wanted to get to about uh combat frame exceed any cool things like for the next indiegogo that you're planning or or, like anything that you want to drop about the second novel while we're here yeah now that you mention it i wasn't even sure how this indiegogo was going to go first of all i know everybody says that but i I was pretty sure we'd eventually hit our initial thousand dollar goal and I thought, okay, maybe in the 11th hour rush at the very end on October 8th, which is when it ends, we might clear a little over 2,000. Well, now we're getting close to 2,300, and we've uh, we've still got over three weeks left. So that's nice. 
I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty I, confident I with all the hype, you're going to be able to get the audiobook unlocked. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's a, it's it's kind of slowed down now, but yeah, they usually sag in the middle of it. A big burst of activity right at the end. People kind of want to wait to see what happens. But I'll definitely let you know, because once again, folks, so if we get to 5,000, Jim's going to do the audiobook of the first novel. Mm-hmm. And we also agreed that if we get to uh, 5,500, I will sing the theme song. <laughs> That's right. And I'm going to, it's going to be in Japanese. I want to, st- oh God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in Japanese. Now I definitely want to stress that I am not a good singer. The singing will not be good. <laughs> but if you want to pay me $500 to sing <laughs> about stompy robots in Japanese, I'll do it. <laughs> uh... I don't have that much shame. Yep. But yeah, I could definitely see my, my way clear to doing a second one. Because uh, again, I, I'm I'm trying to go the whole Colin Anspach route here. And the idea is to release a new book in the X-Seed series every 60 days. That's a tall starting order. Starting June. Well, I'm, that's why I'm ahead of the game here. <laughs> well, I, yeah, you've been planning this for 15 years, so. Yeah, well, not only that, but uh, the, the first novel's almost done. Then I'm going to get right into writing the uh, the short story Interquell and then right into Coalition Year 40. So I'll probably also try to do an Indiegogo like every 60 days because um, we got book two funded. So around when I'm at like this point in book two's production, I'll probably do one to fund book three and then the same thing for book four. And then we'll we'll see how it's going and see if it merits a book five, perhaps a prequel like you were talking about. <laughs> that would be very very cool. And like I say, if you want to keep me on as the uh, as the audiobook narrator, I would be more than happy to to help you out. Thanks, and I do know it's best to stay with the same guy. So we establish a lot. We want a sound for the line, right? Yeah. 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 Um, it's like it's like the Witcher series, you know. Peter Kenny is mm-hmm. the guy who does all the Witcher books, and it's it's perfect because he just gets all of the voices down. Like the only problem with Peter Kenny doing the Witcher books is that in the first book, nobody told him that Dandelion's name is pronounced Dandelion, so he keeps calling him Dandelion. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just corrected it in the they left the first book alone, and then they just like correct because there's a million times where that character's name comes up. It would have been like an entire other project just to go in and correct all of those all of those misspeaks, but <clears throat> no, it, it sounds great. Like he's the perfect voice for Geralt and Dandelion and all of the rest of these characters. He just does it so well. And it, it, the, this audiobook series really would have suffered if they had gotten somebody else to come in. And, and now I'm not saying I'm as good as Peter Kenny. I'm, I'm definitely not, but I like to think that I'm pretty, pretty competent. <clears throat> I know. You know so. somebody. And I know I'm going to have fun doing the first one. I, I can already mm-hmm. tell just with the way that you're you're hyping up the series and the snippet that I've read and, <clears throat> excuse me, things like that. Yeah. I, I already know this is going to be fun to, to write. And it's even going to be fun to edit. Like, edit is the most dragging part of creating an audiobook. But, you mm-hmm. know, the, even the editing is going to be fun on this one. I can tell. Sweet. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, as for book two, so if... The first Combat Frame X-Seed is kind of my take on the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Combat Frame X-Seed Coalition Year 40 is going to be my take on Gundam Wing. Mm. That's going to be interesting. Because I never yeah. got around to watching the whole Gundam Wing uh, series, but what I did watch, I absolutely loved. So, 
you know. Yeah, with, with the boring parts cut out. So think of it as a fusion of, like, Z, the good parts of Zeta and Wing. Okay. Are, uh, are going to be where I'm coming from with Coalition Year 40. And um, to not spoil the outcome of the, the first book too much, it's kind of like, have you read Galaxy's Edge? Yes, I've read the first one. Okay, perfect. So you read the first one, and you know that, okay, the, the first book takes place within this milieu where we, you've got this decrepit, increasingly corrupt republic mm-hmm. that really just throws its own soldiers under the bus and then promotes political appointees because of their connections. And it, it's really unfair. Yeah. Like the end of that book made me mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But then as it goes along, we start, as the series goes along, we start addressing that. Okay. I'll just, I'll say that much. Okay. So, in the the first book, Comet Frame X Seed, and I don't want to give away the uh, the the socio political arrangement of the Earth Sphere is changed at the end. There there are major upheavals, but I will say the Coalition is still around in some form. Okay. Okay. So, in book two, which takes place forty years after the first one. What you've got is more of an underground small mobile insurgent group that starts out committing acts of, uh, let, let's say, like espionage and sabotage, kind, kind of an underground meme war a little bit, but then grows into a serious challenge. So basically, imagine if Pole got exceeds. Oh, God. <laughs> like four of them. Oh, God. That's like, uh, ooh, boy. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's Coalition Year 40. That's going to be awesome. I'm like like I say, every time every time you tell me something new about this series, it's just like, oh, oh God. This is going to be so cool. <laughs> I'm excited, too. I'm, I, you know, I'm super excited. I'm more excited to write book two than book one. I, I, that really comes across, and I think that's what's getting a lot of people hype about this is because they know how serious you are. Uh, they they've seen you put together really good books before, and your excitement is absolutely contagious. Like that's what my excitement is building off of. I was like, I'm vibrating with glee here, and then I'm even more excited to write Comet Frame X Seed S, the third book. And yes, I'm yet more excited than that to write the fourth book, Comet Frame X Seed Double S. <laughs> Be careful with that one. People are going to start calling you a Nazi for putting SS in the title of your book. <laughs> Dude, I've, I've already got German nationalists as a major theme in book one, all right? <laughs> it's going to happen. Oh, that's going to be great. I can't wait to see people get mad about that. It was pronounced different anyway, so whatever. In another Japanese history. <laughs> with the Zeta, double Zeta thing. Yeah. Uh, or like in in French, where W is pronounced uh, double V, because that's what it really is. But yeah, yeah. So all right, uh, are you about ready to wrap it up? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, thank you again for coming on. This has been all kinds of awesome, and I cannot wait to get a hold of uh, of this book. <clears throat> I am please. Um... Yeah, make sure to check me out at uh, com and check out my Comet Frame Exceed Indiegogo, which is live until October 8th. 
And once again, there will be links to all of this, including uh, Brian's Twitter. So be sure to go follow him on his social media and check his blog for the latest updates for this project. And remember, if we get it up to $5,000, I'm going to do the audiobook. And uh, <laughs> within the next couple of days of this recording, we're going to be putting out a, uh, a sample of the audiobook. Um, I'm going to get uh, Christopher Warren to do the audio mastering for it because eventually, like, I, I wouldn't be charging you that much if this wasn't going to be a production. So we're going to get, it's not just going to be like what I do for my podcast where I just delete the noise and stuff like that. Now I'm going to get him, he knows what he's doing with like EQ and everything like that. Um, he knows way more than me. So it's going to be, it's going to be sounding really, really nice. And then, you know, we're going to be talking about cool. doing, doing the music for it so we can get an original, uh, an original theme track for, for the book and things like that so no it's remember all you got to do is get it up to five thousand. tell your friends tell your family tell people you don't even like make and sure then, that everybody knows about this yeah and then 5500 jim will sing jim will sing that to people you really don't like i'm, re I'm regretting this but yes jim will sing <laughs> So, all right. Uh, thank, thank you for coming on the show, man. This has been an awesome talk, and I cannot wait for this to come out. Thank you. So, all right, everybody. Be sure to go support the Indiegogo, and uh, I will catch you all next week. Peace out, everybody. Thanks, everybody.